Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello, you're listening to Lost in Science. It is another fabulous week of fabulous science for your fabulous brain. And with me as always, I have the fabulous Claire and the fabulous Stu. Claire, what... I'm not going to use the word again because I'm I'm pushing it too far. What have you got for us today? (laughs) Well, Chris, you fabulous human you, we have a special guest with us on Lost in Science this week, Dr. Jared McKenna, who is a reproductive biologist who has spent his uh, PhD research doing some incredibly interesting work looking at the Egyptian spiny mouse. And do you know anything about the Egyptian spiny mouse? I can guess some things about it. Okay. <laughs> that it's spiny. Where it's from and, and yeah, where it's it from. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, one of the other incredibly interesting things about it is that unlike most other mice and most other mammals in the world, except us and a few other mammals – it has a period, it menstruates, and it is incredibly rare for that to happen in the animal world. So this means that it's a very good, I guess, model for, you know, human reproduction and female reproduction. Mm. So I'm going to talk to Jared all about that. Cool. Um, so we're talking tiny tampons. <laughs> I think we're talking mouse pads, aren't we? <laughs> hey! <laughs> We have a winner. We have a winner. Oh, wow. How is it that me, the only woman here, did not make any of the pad and tampon jokes? Mouse pads, though, Stu, over to you. What have you got for us this week? Uh, well, uh, back back on the, the fabulous train, I'm talking about fabulous fungi. Um, it's actually uh, a story that's come up in the media about fungi and a computer scientist has been doing weird things looking for signals from the fungi and he's found some stuff which has been reported as that fungi can communicate using electrical signals um and i had a look at what he actually found and let's just say that's not really the story it's an interesting story and i'll get onto it later but uh, i'll try and clarify a little bit and try and mm. try and tone down the the hype that's been built up by some people who probably didn't really read the read the paper that he published actually Mm, sounds spurious to me. Well, <laughs> on with the show. So, about half of us have a monthly period. It's a normal thing and something that you may assume happens across the animal kingdom as well. Well, it's not exactly the case. Menstruation is a lot rarer in the animal kingdom than you may have realised. And this has all kinds of implications for the way that we can research and understand human reproduction and pregnancy. To talk to us about why this is a problem and the tiny little animal who has helped us shed light on the subject, we have with us this week reproductive biologist Dr. Jared McKenna from Monash University. Jared, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. 
Now, tell me, is it true? Are humans a menstruating rarity in the animal kingdom? Yes, it is incredibly, incredibly rare. It's, um, it's about two or less than 2% of all mammals. Uh, so about five and a half thousand um, mammalian species, only about, I think it ends up being 75 or 80. So wow. um, actually have a menstrual cycle. So it's that rare. And do we know why this is? There are a couple of theories, but we've got no answers yet. These are all sort of the evolutionary questions that we don't have answers to. It could be this, it could be that. Um, One of the uh, theories, uh, one of the leading theories, I should say, is that we are lucky enough to have a uh, menstrual cycle where we can afford in a way to um, shed our tissue and not be chased down by predators and things like that. So we're smart enough and we're developed enough that we can sort of fend for ourselves and we can afford to use this sort of reproductive strategy where, as you think of, you know, a whole lot of the mammalian species are prey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, they can't really afford to do that, whereas we can. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, any any other uh, classic theories that that you want to put out there as well, or any um, theories that you might not want to put out there, but are entertaining anyway? Well, that's definitely the leading one, but it's also um, there's another theory about the uterus. Um, it's in a, it's in a weird a weird sort of um, term to use, but the uterus has its own brain, and it's able to sort of select pregnancy um, itself without us sort of having any intervening thoughts. You've done your PhD on human pregnancy and embryo implantation. It sounds incredibly interesting. Jared, what did you set out to find in your PhD? So what I set out to find was completely different to what I ended up finding out, which is quite (laughs) often the case of research, which is why it's so wonderful, but also wonderfully frustrating. Um, So what I set out to do was to actually define a lot of the reproductive techniques that we have at our disposal in humans. So things like IVF and freezing eggs and sperm and doing embryo transfers. I wanted to sort of set up that whole system so that now we could use um, the spiny mouse as a model for all of those techniques together. So backtrack a little bit here because you mentioned the Egyptian spiny mouse, I believe it is, which, you know, it's our sister species in that, you know, it has a period and menstruates as well. Yeah. it, It obviously played a huge part in your research. Yes, definitely. So it was actually an accidental discovery as well. The, um, the menstruating spiny mouse. So the, um, The researcher who discovered it, who turned into my PhD supervisor about halfway through, because why would you not get the one who discovered it and knows everything about it on board? (laughs) Um, She actually wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do. I just didn't know it. (laughs) So I hadn't met her yet. Um, So she wanted to do all of those techniques. And she was one day, there's there's a method on how you tell whether a mouse is pregnant or not is that um, essentially it's visibly evident on the vulva of a mouse. So there's Mm. like a mating plug. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of gross, but it's the coagulated semen from when they mated and then a plug forms. And then so, so many days later that mouse would be pregnant. It's a pretty high efficiency, a pretty good, pretty good success rate. And spiny mouse don't actually form those plugs, but the way that we can sort of get around that is that we can 
sort of take a sample of the cells from inside the vagina of the spiny mouse. And then we can see what cells are there and you can sort of figure out where in the cycle it is or whether mm-hmm. it's pregnant or not. And what the researcher, Dr. Nadia Bellafure found out was that um, in a couple of the mice, she was um, detecting blood. And, you know, the first thing goes through your head was, oh my God, am I hurting these mice? Am I, you know, injuring them in some way? Um, absolutely not. We've had, um, she had her supervisors come through, other animal mm. training experts, technicians all come through. Technique was perfect. And then sort of lo and behold, we've sort of concluded that it had a menstrual cycle and that just unraveled <laughs> the world of reproductive biology uh, in itself. And this is the first mouse to have one. So right. incredible discovery. And I've sort of gone one way or sort of pick picked off where she sort of um, stopped and now she's Mm. gone down another route. So why is it so important for us to do science and research on an animal that has a menstrual cycle compared to an animal that doesn't? There is actually quite a lot of difference, but there's also quite a lot of similarities. So a lot of hormones at play and behind the scenes are the same and menstruating species also have another sort of facet of their... um, pregnancy or reproduction called spontaneous decidualization. Sorry, I had to, it's a long word. It's just one that we can't condense. It's just, it's just what it is. Okay. Um, But what that means is after you ovulate, your uterus immediately starts preparing itself for a pregnancy. So it builds, builds up um, so that the embryo has a place to implant into. Um, And that only happens in menstruating species. So any other species, an estrus species, that actually doesn't happen until the embryo is right next to the uterus. Really? Right. So those stages are very, very different and they're under different hormonal controls. So how and when the embryo implants and how how the uterus prepares itself is very different um, in menstruating and into estrus species. So this um, development of the tissue at the point of ovulation, that's incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really critical. And there are some other menstrual species out there other than the great apes. So uh, the closest relatives, you know, the chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, they all have menstrual cycles. But there are also the rare animals like the spiny mouse, for example. But there's also a couple of bats um, and an elephant shrew, which is like a mouse, but not a mouse. <laughs> so while they do technically have a menstrual cycle, it's, it's less human-like. Okay. So it's, for example, with the bats, they do experience that sort of buildup of the tissue and they do have a period at some point. However, that's seasonally. So it's not every month or so. It's not a cyclical frequent occurrence. It's more once or twice a year. So there are some differences and some similarities, you know, there's a lot of use there, but now that we've got the spiny mouse that shows all of it, you know, we can forget about all the other animals. And now we've got this beautiful mouse, this beautiful mouse model um, that we can, we can study a whole bunch of aspects of female health about. Okay. So you started your PhD with one question. What did you end up discovering over the course of your PhD? Well, there are a few things, but what I can mention off the top of my head is another rare aspect of spiny mouse reproductive biology is that they share some mouse-like features and some human-like features. So call them human-esque sort of reproductive biology. So in humans, the situation when you give birth is that 
generally it's very, very, very rare for you to ovulate at birth or after, I think it's on average while you're lactating about four months or five months, six months around there. If you're not lactating, it's about a month or two. And that is called lactational amenorrhea. Essentially, lactating means that you're not going to ovulate and you're not going to cycle. Whereas in mice and a lot of other estrous species, once they give birth, they actually ovulate immediately or within a day or so. Wow. And that's called a postpartum ovulation. And it's unheard of in a menstrual species because of what we know about how lactation works, um, it shouldn't happen. But of course, the spiny mouse being the the unusual, very rare animal that it is, um, also has a postpartum ovulation. So it has a menstrual cycle, but it also ovulates when it gives birth, which is obscenely rare and (laughs) unbelievably efficient, isn't it? Incredibly efficient. Yeah. (laughs) So we sort of had sort of had that fear in the back of our minds that it might be a thing. But I, in one of my studies, I, I proved it. So we looked at the ovary and we could see the large follicles, which the egg is contained in right before animals are giving birth. And then the day of, or the day after those follicles are now gone and the egg has disappeared. Four or five days after those animals have given birth, we can actually find embryos sitting right next to the uterus, which is exactly the type of time that we would imagine them to be implanting. So very weird. What are some of the other sort of discoveries that the spiny mouse can teach us in terms of assisted reproduction and tell us about ourselves? Well, there was actually a very interesting study that Dr. Balafure did um, a couple of years ago now looking into PMS, uh, premenstrual syndrome. So she looked at the behavior of the mice over the cycle, and that was pre and post ovulation and during their, during their period. And lo and behold, the, the behavior changes quite dramatically, and the behaviors that she looked at um, were essentially very common traits that that women experience while they're on their period so she looked at things like irritability and they ate a lot more and they were more (laughs) anxious and sort of difficult to hold and handle things like that wow so there's even more going on behind the scenes than just having a period they're also experiencing some of those emotional and mental things that are going on at the same time which is again incredible to think that this is just a mouse going through all of these things as well. So Jared, what are your hopes, I guess, for um, this incredible model species and assistance for couples who are experiencing infertility to be able to improve assisted reproduction? There's a whole bunch of different areas that we could dive into um, with spiny mouse biology, but where I would like to see it go, and it sort of stems from my research, Search a little bit is into preeclampsia, which is a pregnancy complication characterized by high blood pressure. So high blood pressure can lead to all sorts of problems with the placenta and with the baby and can terminate the pregnancy at any moment. And it's a really, really big issue. And we think that the spiny mouse will be a great model because of the way that the placenta also forms in spiny mouse. It's spiny mice is very, very similar to how it forms in humans. That's to do with one, how the placenta forms, and two, how the arteries form in the uterus. So that term that I mentioned before, spontaneous decidualization. So what happens during that that period is, um, yes, there's a lot of tissue growth, um, but there's also a lot of arteries and vasculature that starts to sort of embed itself within the uterus. It expands a lot, gets ready for the placenta to form. 
and the way that we see that those um, arteries grow and in the and where in the uterus um, do they grow it's again exactly the same as how we see in humans so wow. the theory would go that we should be able to study issues with too much vascularization too many arteries are there or they're too dilated which could lead to things like like preeclampsia for example if um so i think that would be a really really interesting sort of next step to take my research anyway well jared thank you so much for coming on lost in science this week thanks for sharing your research and also to introduce us to our kindred rodent species teaching us so much about ourselves thanks again what are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. But what do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now... I just want to ask you, what is your favourite kingdom of living things? <laughs> My favourite kingdom? Your favourite uh, kingdom? Come on, there's, yeah, there's, a, there's the at least... Kingdom. There's a, it's the animal kingdom. It's the animal kingdom. I kind of knew you were going to say that, Claire. Yeah. I knew. I knew. Yeah. I kind of have a soft spot for the Archaea. <laughs> you would, Chris. Yeah. Of you course. Would. Of course. One of the... <laughs> You're yeah, a- the the OG kingdom, yeah. the Archaea, been around the longest. How about you? Well, look, I'm I'm quite partial to plants, but I think if I had to pledge allegiance to a kingdom, it would be the fungi. Uh, wow. They've, they've mm. really got a lot going on as living things go. Evolutionarily, more closely related to animals than to plants. But for a really long time, before we really understood anything about genetics, they were lumped in as non-photosynthetic plants. And if you look at old biology books, they'll be listed as, yeah, they're in the plant kingdom, they're non-photosynthetic. Of course they're non-photosynthetic, they're not plants. (laughs) So they're, they're not just plants that can't make sugar, though they do form symbiotic relationships with plants to get free sugar. I'm liking that idea. Interesting you bring that up. Chris, because yeah. lichen is a symbiosis between a fungus and a cyanobacteria. Oh, is that right? Yes. Ah. So in exactly what's going yeah. on there. And they're also responsible for a lot of decomposition. So fungi mostly feed on dead stuff and break it down into simpler molecules, which releases nutrients back into the various nutrient cycles so living things can use those nutrients and grow again um what's not to love about that in terms uh, of things that your kingdom can do for you yeah those little rotters um my my uh my phd supervisor used to refer to plants as the photosynthetic appendages of fungi because of how common that symbiosis is so if you look at it that way the the plants are doing all the hard work and the fungi are just sitting in the sitting underground Sitting in the shadows. Yeah, lapping up all that free sugar. Um, So fungi can also be quite huge. Uh, Possibly the largest organism on Earth, certainly the biggest ever recorded, is a fungus which is under a forest in the US. But they can also be microscopic, and most fungal species are very small, and we only see them when their colonies get large enough for us to notice. 
on, you know, when you go to make a piece of toast in the morning and, uh-oh, the fungi have moved in and your mm. bread is no longer your breakfast, it is their breakfast. Um, and they produce lots of spores and that's what we see when we see mould and stuff. We're mostly seeing the spores. But the majority of fungi are relatively harmless to us, though we've got some very useful things from fungi other than food. Probably the most notable is penicillin, which is the first widely used antibiotic, and a lot of antibiotics were based on penicillin. That's why a lot of them have got acillin on the end of them. Uh, it's the sort of whole class of, of antibiotics they use. But fungi exist in all kinds of environments. They can be found living anywhere there is a food source and an appropriate environment. And even when there's no food, their spores are pretty much everywhere just waiting for a meal to arrive. And they they seem largely passive organisms, if I describe them that way, for the most part. But they can alter their environment to some degree, and they can cause changes in whole ecosystems and they can certainly have huge economic impact. For example, did you know that the English drink tea largely because of coffee rust, which is a fungal disease of coffee, wiped out all of the English coffee plantations on Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka, forcing them to grow tea, and then the uh, UK government fought, well, not forced people to drink tea but certainly strongly encouraged the English population to drink tea so they drink tea because they couldn't get any coffee basically so and, and that's because of a fungus that wiped out all of their coffee plantations now you said they can't move around much is a, is a slime mold a fungus or is that a different thing they're actually a different kind of organism so they they've got things in common with fungi and things in common with bacteria right. so they go in that miscellaneous kingdom where they shove everything else that doesn't quite fit into another kingdom but i say that they can't move around much but they are capable of producing zoospores which can actually swim from one place to another in search of food so they don't just wait around for delivery they can pick up their own dinner well some of them can anyway Fungi can also produce spores. So fungi can produce, uh, can reproduce by just growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and they can get bigger that way. They can also reproduce by spores, and they can produce asexual spores, which are kind of clones of the fungi themselves, and sexual spores where they recombine genetic information with other individual fungi that they come in contact with. Right, uh, and, and do all fungi uh, have those options available to them? Yeah, but there's also some of them produce more than two kinds of spores. So there's there's multiple uh, asexual spore f- types that different fungi can produce as well. Right. And they have different growth cycles and habits and all sorts of crazy things. There's there's you know there's multiple different sexual recombination techniques that different fungi use as well. But most people when they think of fungi tend to think of mushrooms and toadstools which are in a group which we loosely term macrofungi because we can see them with the naked eye uh, and these visible fruiting bodies are the most obvious feature and they but they represent a tiny part of the organism most of the fungus is actually underground and what we see above the ground or what we see as the mushroom or the toadstool is just the spore producing organ of the fungus 
And so most of the fungus is actually either in the soil or within whatever substrate the fungus is consuming, like a big dead tree or a log or something like that. Now, like most living organisms, fungi produce electrical charges. And recently a paper was published that looked at the electrical charges produced by several macrofungal species. So a scientist in Bristol... He was actually in the uh, in a computer science lab. Uh, he was just interested to see what was going on with those. So he put electrodes into the substrate that was that was around the growing fungi and found spikes in the electrical charge in the substrate around these four fungal species. And he measured them and found that they produced patterns which he compared to human languages. Now there was a lot of media attention to this saying oh fungi speak like humans and they've got a lexicon and they've got all this stuff and it's a way of looking at the way the patterns sort of play out when they were recorded and he looked at these spikes in electrical charges and put them into phrases and put them into words and sort of analyzed them in all these different ways but the thing i think to remember here is that a signal is only a signal if it's received so the fungi themselves are producing electrical charges, but whether anything's picking up those charges before this guy went and stuffed his electrodes into the soil around them <laughs> is a big question. And that is that is the real question that needs to be answered here is, are they doing it for a reason or are these electrical charges a result of just the fungus going about its business of, mm. of breaking breaking down food sources and and you know releasing nutrients for its own consumption and that sort of thing so that the charges might not be random and they may produce patterns but unless those patterns have a meaning to either the fungi themselves or something else some other organism they are just charges so one of the sort of examples i was thinking about was we pick up signals from the universe we pick up signals from space all the time that are not random signals um, pulsars are the most obvious example of a signal that we get from space, which is not random. It is a very regular signal. And there's also various astronomical phenomena produce patterns of signals all the time. But there's no language involved and there's no communication. They are regular because of some phenomena that they are being triggered by. They're not some form of communication, which is what some of the, uh, some of the media that's been reporting on this um, have sort of interpreted it immediately and a lot of things can fit into the patterns of you know lexicography and 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 language if you try and put them into those patterns because you know we're really good as a species humans at looking for patterns and finding them where there's not necessarily anything that we need to be looking for so unless there's a mechanism for fungi or other organisms to receive these electrical signals, they don't really represent communication in any useful definition of the word. But certainly something for researchers to explore, and it might lead to some new ways of understanding fungal relationships and ecological interactions. But as the researcher who discovered this electrical activity said himself, it might mean nothing at all. And it will take a bright spark to find out what's really going on. And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. 
Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us wherever you found us today again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.